Amen. Thank you guys for that. Great job, Seth. Worship band. Yeah. That was beautiful. That was incredible. Uh, my name is Ernie. I'm the pastor here. Welcome to Mercy Hill Church. We're excited to have you with us this morning. Uh, students, welcome back. All right. Listen, you guys are coming here for the first time. A couple of things I need you to understand is that one, you have been prayed for and thought about and loved before you ever even showed up. All right, we can clap for that, all right, we can clap for that. Like, that is an absolute true thing about Mercy Hill Church. Next year, we're celebrating two years of being a church, but the purpose why we landed in this city was to be a church that loved the city and the campus. All right, there are some churches and some organizations that love the campus, and there are lots of churches that love the city. We want to be one that does both. In fact, you kind of see it in our mission statement where we say we are ordinary people transformed by the mercy of God to reach our campus, city, and world. Now, there's some things that are in that mission statement I want to explain to you. And if you're new at church or have never heard this, this is a great opportunity for you to hear that. Is we believe that God loves to use ordinary people like me and you to do extraordinary things because he's an extraordinary God. If you look at the scriptures over and over and over again, if you look at Moses, Abraham, David, all these people that God used in extraordinary ways, even the disciples, uh, many of them were not extraordinary people whatsoever. And so there is no pressure to be something that you are not here. What we want you to be is a follower of Christ. And by his grace and mercy, you'd be transformed into his image and that you would live out a radically different life than you ever thought was possible because of the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you as a Christian. And that you'd be the kind of person that reaches the campus, the city, the world. Those are our ambitions. That's why God has placed Mercy Hill Church here. And that's the kind of church that we will continue to strive after to be. Uh, also, something you're going to notice if it's your first time here, uh, I think it's important for you to know, especially this morning, that we're the kind of church that teaches the Bible. That's what we do. Uh, we're not coming here trying to figure out chicken soup for the college student's soul or anything like that, or for the adult soul or the mom's soul or whatever. Like, we are here to teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So tip, our regular cadence is we open up the Bible, we begin teaching through a book, teaching it within context, and helping you understand and grow into maturity as a follower of Christ. Our person that is looking to discover who Jesus is to hear what the Bible actually says about God and what it looks like to follow him. So you would have a clearer picture of what it is and grow in maturity and be a follower of Jesus that, that reaches people where they live, work, and play, that chases after the lost and grows in our depth and knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is. Now, having said that, this morning we're going to do something a little bit different, which is kind of funny. Now, we're going to start by opening up our Bibles, though. And if you don't have one, there is one underneath the chair next to you or underneath your chair. If you don't own a Bible that is in a readable language, maybe you have a Bible your grandma gave you that says King James Version. And there's lots of thou's and saws. You're like, I don't know what that is. You know, this is one that's written in a, a regular vernacular of English that you can understand. And we're going to be in John chapter 8. In fact, really, it's chapter 7, verse 53. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to talk about it. All right? Starting in seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 53, it's John. It's one of the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, not First John or Second John or Third John. You may get mixed up in that area, but John, the, go the Gospel of John. And it says this. They went each to his own house, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the, the midst. They, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you want? What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they, were, they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to, him, said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. I condemn you. I, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would have an understanding of these words this morning that would give us a fresh view of who you are and confidence in your word that would not be there unless we had the opportunity to talk and read and look at this, Lord. I pray that you would remove the congested feel, uh, emotions in our hearts of all the things that are going on, whether it's classes, whether it's the to-do list when you get home or the sinks broken, or what, all those things that are there, that we would just remove them and you, you would get our entire focus, our entire energy, and in that moment you would begin to transform and change our hearts, that we would be different people because of who you are and you speaking to us. Amen. Okay. So as you read this in your Bible, what is the first thing you notice? It's the brackets, right? You notice that that passage is bracketed in. Why are the brackets there? Why are the brackets there? Why is, it, why is that bracketed in? And if you, some of you, maybe you saw that, you looked at the bottom of your page, the bottom of the page, and you see that there's a notation there pointing towards those brackets, and it says something like this, some manuscripts do not include. Or it may say something like, older manuscripts do not include this. These brackets, guys, right here, have tripped up so many people. Lots of people have seen this, and they've become confused and frustrated and did not know what to do and even have had crisis of faith. Some of you have heard people use these brackets to say, hey, this is why you can't trust the word of God. Some of you students are going to stand up, your professor is going to point at this and be like, this is why the word of God is unreliable. It is a work of fiction that's just been created by a bunch of men to create control over people. For some people, these brackets have caused a complete crisis of faith. But I would like to submit to you that these brackets should not weaken our faith, but bolster it. That when we properly understand them, our confidence in Scripture should not be shaken, but reinforced and strengthened. Let me, let's deal with these brackets right here in this morning, right now. Now, let me be clear with you. This is not typically how we teach a sermon at Mercy Hill Church. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit about a lot of context. And I think if you stick with me for a little bit, you're going to have some deeper understanding of the Word of God. Now, for us to understand why these brackets are here, there's a couple things we understand. First is this. You realize that the original autograph, the original manuscripts were not written in English, Right? Right? It wasn't written in King James, and we've just translated it to English. It was written in Greek and Hebrew. Okay? The originals were written in Greek and Hebrew. If you've ever been in a class, like you had to take Spanish, all right, in high school, you knew it wasn't just like word replacement. All right? It wasn't just like, okay, this word means sleep in Spanish, and it means sleep in English. But then it's like, well, it has this ending and this thing. Like, you know it's not as simple 
is that. The second thing you have to understand is this. Before the 1400s, there was no printing press. So if you wanted to copy a book, if you wanted to publish a book or copy it, it had to be done by hand by people called scribes. Now, as you can imagine, even the best scribes would make mistakes from time to time. And there isn't anything sinister about it. It's just a natural result of this kind of process. And most of these mistakes were very small, and others were a bit larger, like larger sections that could get left out or words be added. And because of this reality of scribal transmission, an entire new scholarly pursuit was created. It was called textual criticism. You're earning like you're talking to me about textual criticism at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. That doesn't sound very fun. This is what textual criticism and textual criticism is basically examining the biblical manuscripts that we have, determining when they were written, and comparing them with uh, one another, and determining based on those comparisons that determines the the origin of that text, and was it, and and what was a scribal error. Okay, so as a result of most New Testament scholars, they do not think this passage of Scripture was in John's original gospel. And they don't think it for four reasons. Okay, reason number one is the section doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts that we find of John. Reason number two is that when it does show up in the later Greek manuscripts around the 5th century... It's in five different locations, four different locations in John, one different location in Luke. Thirdly, the early church fathers don't mention it in their commentary. And fourthly, the vocabulary and style tends to interrupt the entirety, the consistency of of the story that we're seeing as Jesus is at the the tabernacle, is at the, the feast of the tabernacle that will continue on next week. So because of these important considerations, I agree with the most faithful and conservative evangelical scholars that this account was not originally in the Gospel of John. So what does that mean? Does it mean that everything's fair game? Does it mean that we can pick and choose? Like we we should have doubt in our hearts about the word of God and the truth of God. And is this really the truth of God? Is this, can can we really know that the rest of it is actually the Bible and not just something that an editor added in at some point? Those are great questions, but I'm going to say it again. I think that this should actually bolster up confidence that when we look at the word of God, it is actually the word of God in our hearts. And I got a couple of reasons for you. Three, write these down. There are more Greek manuscripts of the New Testament than pretty much any other ancient text. On average, we find about 20 copies. That's how you're going to get deep in the weeds here. We're almost out, all right? Some of you are like, this sounds like class started a day early. Stick with me. It's going to be worth it. On average, we find around 20 copies of ancient texts. Like, for example, of Herodotus, we have like eight of those. We have seven of Plato. We have 49 of Aristotle. And of Homer, we have 643. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? From something written 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Guess how many we have of the New Testament? 5,700 and counting. We have 5,700 manuscripts 
of the New Testament. And furthermore, the oldest one that we have, the oldest ones that we have, date about 125 years from when they were written. Whereas the earliest of all of the manuscripts that were not biblical texts that I listed are around 400 years after they were originally written. Why is this important? Because it's important because the accuracy of textual criticism actually increases by the number of manuscripts you have. In other words, when textual criticism critics look at it, they don't just have 10 to 12 things to compare themselves to, compare each other to. They have 5,700 that they can compare to one another. And the vast majority, and, and there is incredible consistency. In fact, the vast majority of difference that they find, 99% of it is like scribal discrepancies in which like they get the word order wrong where they say like, well, in this one it says Christ Jesus, but in this one it says Jesus Christ. Or, or that they have like an inappropriate pronoun or a misspelling of something. You know, inappropriate pronoun where we say, instead of saying John, it would say the John. The Bible, guys, is not chock full of error. It's chock full of consistency. And the errors that we find, the errors that we find are minuscule, are noted. The second reason we should have confidence in our Bible is this, is the incredible small number of textual and notes within our Bible. There's pretty much three. There's the omission of John chapter 5, verse 4. There's this text. And then there's the end of Mark. Those are the only three. Now, if scribes were trying to deceive us, they'd be doing a really bad job because they're being very transparent. Furthermore, one textual canon scholar says this, there is no unresolved textual variance placed on significant doctrine and jeopardy by these errors. In other words, there is no existing textual variance between manuscripts that affect central doctrines between Christianity. It's not like you find in one text there's a different perspective on Jesus' resurrection than another. It is consistent on the most important things. Here's the third reason why I think we should have a lot of confidence in our Bible. Is that it would be impossible, I believe, impossible to fake. Maybe you got on the internet and you got on YouTube shorts, you know, and somebody's telling you like these weird videos, like doo 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 music in the background, and they're going, he's like, did you know the Bible you're reading was, 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 was actually breeded up by a bunch of monks that were overzealous and wanted to make it look older than it was or make it look more consistent than it was or, or make it look in all these weird ways? You know how impossible it would be for monks to do that in the 14th, like 1400s? Like, there'd be three levels of conspiracies they have to go through. I just want you to think about this. First, what they would have to do is they would have to find all of the ancient Greek manuscripts, even the ones that hadn't been dug up yet, that they hadn't found yet. They would have to then edit them. After editing all those documents, after editing all those documents, they would then have to put them back where they found them, where they didn't actually know where they were because several thousands of them have not been found but have been found now because of archaeological work that's happened. But, they, but let's just say they somehow found them or they hid them, that they cached them away, and then they 
have to tell nobody. All right? That would be the first thing they'd have to do. The second thing they'd have to do is they'd have to go to all these different countries because the Bible before it was ever translated in English was translated in other languages like Latin or, or syntax or in, in African languages. And they have to go find those and then they have to make the lies they made in these match those lies. And all of the, all the texts that would be found and are, and are being found that haven't been found yet, they would have to have known where all those are and put those texts together. And then the third thing they would have to do is this. Here's the third thing. Is that the, the, the early church fathers were very zealous about creating commentary about God's word. They were very zealous about it to the point that, that they had created so much content of commentary on the word of God. If we never found a manuscript, we could construct 96% of all of the New Testament just by their quotations of, of, the, of scripture and their citations. And so then after they would have to do that, they would have to run down all of those copies and they would have to erase them. They'd have to edit them and have to put them back. They would do all that. Lord help you if you believe that. Like, that's just the craziest theory I've ever heard. It takes more faith to believe something like that could ever have happened than to just believe that these words are actually the words of God and they're actually incredibly consistent with one another. We have incredible evidence to believe that when we open up the Bible that you are actually reading the words that John wrote. And wherever there is areas where there may even be doubt of that, you have incredible transparency. Your heart should rest very easy, Christian. Men and women looking at this, you should not doubt what you are reading was written 2,000 years ago. It is clear. It is honest. It is true. Now, based on the evidence that I agree that this with the scholars that this passage right here is not authoritative, inerrant scripture, I do believe it's an actual historical event that happened. And I do believe it illustrates a truth that shows up in many places of other inspired and errant authoritative passages in the New Testament. And the story it illustrates is this. In Christ, guilty sinners are not condemned, but given grace and empowered to live in holiness. Let's look back at the story. I want to show you how it illustrates that. Okay, so you start at the very beginning of the story. Jesus is teaching, and you have the Pharisees and the religious leaders that are looking to catch him up. They're looking to trap him. And in the midst of doing that, they bring forth this woman. And they say, hey, she's been caught in adultery. The law says we should stone her. What do you say we should do? Let me just pause for a second because I think it really shows the character of these men. That they find a woman in her worst possible failure and moment. And they drag her out as a spectacle in order to bring down somebody else. How horrific and gross this is of these religious leaders, how broken and corrupt are their hearts that they would do such a thing. Now Jesus responds beautifully. He responds because he just turns the table on them. Look at verse seven. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Why is that smart? 
Is Jesus just saying like, hey, look, everybody messes up. Let's just not judge one another. Is he just throwing out justice? What he's actually doing is he's actually rightly applying the law of God, the law of Moses, that they were actually manipulating. See, because in the law that they're quoting, that we have to stone them, it would actually be the male and the female would have to be stoned. And Jesus looks at them and starts pointing at Deuteronomy 17, 6, verses 6 through 7. It says, no one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. The witness's hands are to be the first to put him to death. And after that, the hands of all the people. See, Jesus doesn't say this is an issue. He doesn't dismiss the law. He says, which of you witnessed the sin and are also innocent of the sin that you are accusing her of? Go ahead and throw the first stone. And one by one, they begin to drop their stones. And the only one that's left is the one who has the right to pick up the stones and cast judgment on her. And look at Jesus' words. After he says, woman, where are those who condemn you? And she says, no one. In verse 11, he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Let me read that again. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Jesus' first statement in this story It says, neither do I condemn you. In fact, it's a consistent thing that we see with Jesus throughout the entirety of the narrative of John and Matthew and Luke. And it's consistent in which we see in the teachings of his disciples and in the word of God that we read that points towards Jesus as the Messiah. Listen to me, Mercy Hill Church, listen to me. God does not desire judgment for you. He desires to give you mercy and grace. Many of you in your heart and your mind do not want to approach God with the things that you think he doesn't know because you are expecting judgment. See, for you, the worst thing you could think is that Jesus read your diary or he saw you last Thursday or he heard the way that you talked to your wife or he saw how you treated an employee. He, the, for you, that could be the worst thing that you want to hide from him. Hoping he doesn't see. Here's the, here's the thing that's silly about that. He already knows because he's God. When we play that game, it's like when I used to play hide and go seek with my, my oldest son who's now 10. But when he was like three, I'd be like, I'd be like all right, I'm the seeker. I'm going to close my eyes and count. I'd close my eyes and count to 20. And I'd open my eyes. You know what I'd see? I'd see Jackson right there going, you can't find me. You can't find me. Because in his head, he's like, if you can't see me, I can't, if I can't see you, you can't see me. And that's what we do with God often. We're like, oh, God didn't see. God doesn't know. I don't want to go to him about this because I'm worried about what he's going to bring about, the justice that I deserve, the, 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 the condemnation that I deserve. But what you would find, the best thing that actually could happen is that you would actually realize that Jesus has already seen you in your worst moments. And his words to you are not judgment, but mercy and grace. And forgiveness. That is what God desires. Christians, stop hiding from the one that wants to give mercy. Now, also notice what he said as well. He said, 
Go, and from now on, sin no more. He doesn't say neither do I condemn you, now go and live however you want. Neither do I condemn you because it doesn't matter. Eat, drink, and be merry. Just do whatever you want. He says, no, go and sin no more. See, this is mercy and grace from God to say that. Why is it mercy and grace from God to say that? Because this is the thing. Jesus did not save you from sin so that you could dive head on back into it. The thing he saved you from, he doesn't want you involved in anymore. Because what sin is in your life, it is poison. It is destructive. And Jesus has given you the antidote to be saved from the deathly, like the, the deathly potent poison of sin. And he has also given you an opportunity not to drink of it anymore. To say there's another way, a better way to live. He is extending grace and forgiveness and giving us the freedom to walk in righteousness. Now here's the amazing thing about the story. We don't even need this story to get that lesson. Because if you can, for a second, open up your Bible to Romans 8. Open up to Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 1. It says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Three points that are in this thing that Paul has written, in this scripture that Paul's written, that are also true about the story we read. Here's the first one. Jesus frees believers from the penalty of sin. Write this down. Jesus frees believers from the penalty of sin. That when we were guilty in our sin and shame, Jesus took the stone of condemnation on behalf of us. That Jesus didn't subvert the law. He didn't throw it away. He fulfilled it. The woman who was caught in adultery could receive grace because one day Jesus would bear her guilt. And because Jesus bore the guilt of our sins on his shoulders, because he took the rock of God's wrath on our behalf, those who trust in him can have, can be set free from the penalty of sin. Here's the second thing we see in this passage. Jesus frees believers from the power of sin. See, not only does Jesus want to free us from the penalty of sin, the judgment we deserve and distance from him long-term, but the power of sin, that when we are freed from the penalty of sin by the grace through faith, we are also freed from sin's power. We are no longer, we are no longer slaves of sin. We are no longer must walk in the sinfulness of our flesh, but we can actually say no. Which means, Christian, for that, that sin that has had a death grip on your life forever, that thing that you hide and you don't tell people about, that thing that you hope just stay, like you take with you to your grave, that you participate or that you have done or you do regularly, that, that you feel like you can't even say no to, through the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in your life as a follower of Jesus, you can actually say no to that thing. 
Amen, right? We can actually be free of that. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, amen to that, right? I don't have to live in the pattern of which God found me, but he has set me free not only from the penalty, but the power of it. Here's the third thing he's done. That Jesus has freed believers for living in righteousness. That you have been freed now to live the life you were meant to live in Christ. No longer living a life where you didn't know Christ. Where you just, dwelt, where you just dwelt in sin. Where you just walked in sin. Where you pursued and looked for fulfillment in the wrong places. Now some of you look at me and go, oh, there's the catch. You're just saying freed. You're free to do the right thing now. This is the behavior modification I thought was going to come when I came to church. You know the weird thing about freedom? I said that weird, didn't I? <laughs> I'm going to do that a lot. Say things weird. Public school, Louisiana. <laughs> Something we have to understand about freedom is this. It's not the absence of restriction. There's no reality of no restrictions in your life. Every choice you make brings restrictions into your life. Sorry, freshman college students, your mom dropped you off and you're here and you're like, finally. You're misunderstanding what freedom is. Let, let's put it to the test, okay? Let's say that I decided I have the freedom to eat whatever I want. Actually, let's just say Jackson, my son, has the freedom to eat whatever he wants. All right, and if he could eat any meal that he wanted ever, it would be Taco Bell. All right, he would be crushing some soft tacos, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? All right, so if he had the freedom of choice to do that, to just like cheesy gordita crunch it all the way up, all right? We all love the cheesy gordita crunch, all right? But, there's, but we shouldn't eat it every day. There's a reason why Taco Tuesday is only on Tuesday, Right? <laughs> right? I love Taco Tuesday, but it can't be every day. It's got to be only on Tuesday. Why? Because if I ate Taco Bell for every meal, every day of my life, that's going to cause restrictions on my life, isn't it? I can only indulge in that food. It's also going to cause restrictions on my health. You know, like if I was the one eating Taco Bell, not Jackson, I would look even more rounder than I am. All right. If I was, if, if, and all that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shorten my life. I'm going to give up some things in my life. That freedom to choose and eat whatever I want is going to cause other restrictions within me. Guys, don't you see? True freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. It's the presence of the right restrictions that, when, that will allow you to enjoy the freedom of, what, of that which is better. A fish on the shore is not actually free because he was created to be in land. It's only in the restrictive context of water that a fish can flourish and live according to God's design. You picking up with what I'm saying here? See, the grace of God in Jesus sets us free from sin's penalty. It sets us free from its power so that we could walk in the joy of obedience. Able to forsake sin because we're free to enjoy a deeper, better, more satisfying reality of communion with God through Jesus Christ. Amen. So here's the call. 
this morning. Stop jumping out of the water of God's good design, thinking you will flourish on the shore of your fleshly desires. Stop thinking that you are more free and rebellion to God's word. And start believing the truth that true freedom is found in obedience to his word. Because what the word is pointing us to this, that in Christ, guilty sinners like you and me are not condemned, but have been given grace so that we might live in holiness. Today, would we receive and live according to this beautiful truth? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much that your hand is over all things. And you are in control of all things. And you have given us so much evidence to the truth of your word so that we can trust it and know that those who are in Christ are free, not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin and free to walk in absence, the free to walk in obedience to you instead of submitting ourselves to things that would never bring life to us. Lord, I pray this morning that men and women would be set free in the gospel. That they would lay aside something that you have already paid for. And they would take hold of you. Lord, for the believer that we would actually believe the truth and we'd walk away from that thing we couldn't walk away from that we feel like we're so stuck in. Lord, for those that don't know you yet, that they would understand that you are the antidote. That you have come not to condemn us, but to redeem us. That you have not come to give judgment, but forgiveness. And that they would accept that forgiveness and they would walk in the truth of your scriptures, being transformed followers of Christ, new creations. God, may that be true of us. God, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. Amen.